I was preaching at Woyaton, our friends on the north side, the Lakota Lutheran Church, uh, a few weeks back. The text was the same that we heard here, Jesus angry in the temple, turning tables over. And in spite of the text being the same, anytime I go over there to preach, I can never preach the same sermon because the context is so different. And so I was preaching there without any sort of a manuscript and describing Jesus in the temple, getting upset. And I said, and that's what had Jesus so pissed off. And you laughed immediately because of the context, but they all all looked at me and each other uncertain what they were supposed to do. Because here this this pastor had just stood up there and said, pissed off in in church. (laughs) And so I said, after saying, it's all right, and then they laughed a little bit, having been given permission, I said, if Jesus can turn over temples in the table, I think I can say, pissed off occasionally in church. And then we laughed, and we probably felt closer because of it. It is an obstacle for pastors. Swearing, alcohol, sex. People get really uncomfortable when these things come up around pastors. Just for the record, I won't blink an eye if you swear in front of me. Uh, If you want to make me uncomfortable, apologize after doing it. I'm also a craft beer connoisseur, and uh, I think, frankly, the church needs to talk more about sex rather than less. But it's a problem that people feel like they need to hide these pieces of themselves around the church. People have this false image of what a pastor is supposed to be, and it can actually end up being an obstacle to relationship with who pastors actually are. Just as, my, just as problematic in my own head, I have my own image of what a pastor is supposed to be. This image of Pastor Eric has a whole lot of control and, frankly, keeps me from being fully Eric as a pastor. It's the Pastor Eric image that keeps me from sharing stories that make me look weak or uncertain or vulnerable, instead filling my sermons with theological teaching and biblical interpretation that make me look smart and knowledgeable. False selves are insecure. Identities built on sand preoccupied with what others think. I actually believe that there's far more power in vulnerability, that Jesus models that on the cross. But false selves are moved by fear and anxiety rather than faith and conviction. So sometimes... My deeper beliefs and convictions end up on the shelf. And we all do this. I hope I'm not just confessing this unique problem that I have, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. Psychologists tell us that we learn very early on what behaviors 
gain us acceptance and approval and what risks hurt and rejection. My best friend had his first child on, on Tuesday, so I've been getting pictures and videos all week, and at one point he sent me a, a message, and he said, he's already so sweet. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, it's only downhill from here. Because <laughs> hopefully he's not watching this sermon. Uh, we learn quickly, really quickly, how to fit in. How to manipulate people to get what we want and need. How to protect ourselves. And what parts of ourselves we need to hide from others. We learn what people expect, or at least what we think they expect of us, and we change ourselves accordingly. So we all end up with a false self, like my pastor Eric, who isn't really me, but I know will be accepted. We trade authenticity for security. And eventually these identities get so mixed up that we can't tell the true self from the false self. In fact, we imagine the false self is who we are. In our gospel text today from John, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's the perfect example of a text that should be read on multiple levels. On the most immediate level, Jesus is certainly talking about his own imminent death and resurrection. But we can also read this as a stewardship text that teaches us about giving, that it's in letting go and returning to God what has been entrusted to us, our time, our gifts and resources. It's in letting them go, turning them over to God, that they become truly fruitful. On a third level, the spiritual teachers have always found in this and similar texts a lesson and identity. Whoever loves their self will lose it. And whoever loses their self for my sake will find it. It's a teaching about the false selves we create and the need for those to die if we are to become the true self that God created us to be. At the beginning of Lent, I suggested, as we were talking about the spiritual disciplines of giving and fasting and prayer that are the center of Lent, I suggested that the discipline of fasting was about letting go of the things that get between us and God. There's no bigger obstacle than our false self. Jeremiah writes that God is going to make a new covenant 
and he's going to write it on our hearts. The old covenant that the people broke was about doing the right things. Likewise, our false selves are constantly trying to do or at least appear to do the right things, prove their worth, cover up their insecurity, and fulfill the expectations of others. The false self believes that what we do is who we are. But the do the right thing covenant leads to disappointment, guilt, and feelings of inadequacy. In short, death. So God bypasses with this new covenant in Christ. God bypasses our doing to splice forgiveness into our DNA. No longer will they say, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Christ's faithfulness is imprinted on our souls. So in the end, accepting our true selves and accepting Christ are one and the same. Christ and our true, imperfect selves dwell together at the intersection of God's grace, that place within us where God has written forgiveness on our hearts. The spiritual journey is a movement towards that intersection, receiving God's mercy through Christ. And in the process of receiving Christ and the grace that Christ offers, accepting our true selves. Last week, uh, the preparation for affirmation of baptism class met after worship downstairs. And I invited them to consider the question, how would you know if you were growing in faith? I'd noticed a lot of comments and and connected them with how many I've heard elsewhere and how many I've said in myself about wanting to grow in faith, be strengthened in my faith. How would you know if you were growing in faith? And they were having such a good discussion down there that I didn't want to interrupt, but I'm going to offer you my thoughts this morning. At least some of them. We don't have that long. Growth in faith looks like Increased authenticity and vulnerability. Because we don't need to pretend that we're anything we're not. We don't need to hide our imperfections and vulnerabilities because we trust that God loves and accepts us as we are. Growth in faith looks like decreased fear. We don't need to be afraid of difference or change because our identity is secure in Christ. We don't need to fear loss or death because we trust that God will raise up something new. Growth in faith looks like increased patience, compassion, and forgiveness when we trust that God accepts our true, flawed selves, 
we become more accepting of the differences and imperfections of others. Receiving God's grace fills us with a grace that then overflows to our neighbors. With this in mind, I think that at its best, the church is exceedingly, uncomfortably real. It's full of tears because we acknowledge the painful realities that we all experience but that we don't talk about elsewhere. And so those things that we feel we have to hold inside suddenly have a space in the church where they can come out. And so the church is a place wet with tears. The things we hide in darkness are brought into the light. And there's no accusations of self-righteousness because our dirty laundry is hanging out there. An example of vulnerability but also faith and trust in the transformative power of the cross. That Yeah, this messy business over here is part of who I am, but it is not all that I am. And in spite of this, I am accepted and loved. In this space, people aren't taught about grace. They experience it when they feel invited to share their insecurities, hurts, and failures, and find that their shame is met by love and not judgment. I think that's the true church. And if you just play with that and let that develop in your imagination a, a little bit, it's actually quite terrifying. That level of vulnerability and being immersed in the vulnerability of others. Beautiful, but terrifying. So I think that we've also created a false church. The same way that I've developed a false pastor, Eric, the false church pretends that it has it all sorted out, that it has the answers, that it isn't plagued by the same fear and pettiness and conflict that's everywhere else. We, of course, know that that's not the truth. But we hide those realities behind beautiful music and education and small talk. And then, of course, all of us in the false church you know, feel compelled to behave accordingly, carefully staying within the lines of what's socially acceptable. In the end, more than swearing, it's troubling to me how often people feel like they need to apologize for crying around me as a pastor. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Do we have the faith to let the false church, hiding behind the facade of togetherness, 
we have the faith to let that false church die so God can raise up something new. Two weeks ago, I told the youth that had gathered Sunday afternoon for messy conversations with Pastor Eric that I don't think people want to avoid these messy conversations. We were talking about disappointment and how we cope with that. Tonight we'll be talking about the struggle with parents' expectations. I think there's actually a deep hunger, not just among young people, but among all people, to talk about these messy things. The trouble is we don't know how or where. The how is a work in progress, but here, here is the answer. Here, where we profess that God meets all of that messiness, imperfection, and failure with grace and forgiveness. Here, where we claim that all are welcome. Here, where many of us have already experienced flashes of that true church that has space for our hurt and confusion. I don't know what the future of the church holds. It certainly seems clear that things have and will continue to be transformed, that there's been a death of sorts and something will, will rise up. But I don't know what that looks like in regards to worship or programming or staffing or anything like that. We'll likely do some different things. But I hope that we can be a place where people are set free by the gospel to be who God created them to be. For freedom, we have been set free, Paul writes. Freed from pretending, impressing, and fulfilling the endless expectations of those around us. Freed to be our vulnerable, struggling, insecure selves, and to invite others to do the same. E.E. E. Cummings once wrote, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle that any human being can fight and never stop fighting. Can the church be the place where we, with Christ, fight that battle to be ourselves, to be who God made us to be? Can it be the place where we fight and struggle together, affirming and encouraging one another along the way, showing grace as we receive grace from God and one another? Jesus didn't die for the false self you think you're supposed to be. Jesus died so that you could be who you are in all your anxiety and uncertainty. Jesus died so you'd know you were accepted with 
all your eccentricities, emotional swings and moral failures and wavering beliefs. So when we say things like, Jesus died for you, or the body of Christ for you, that's the you that we're talking about. Not who we think we're supposed to be, who others expect us to be, even who we want to be, but who we are. Our true selves, that's the who. That's the you that Christ died for. And Jesus has called us to share that good news with the world. Amen.